Hi and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. This is a series of short stories about my 28 year career in the British Police Force um, in various different roles and we'll get on to those as we work our way through. This is episode number 13. Unlucky for some, hopefully not for me. And today we're going to talk about um, assaults on police uh, and certainly the first time that I was assaulted uh, in the course of my duty. I mean, you don't join the police um, thinking it won't happen to you. You know, the reality is it is definitely going to happen to you at some point. It's just a question of how bad and when and how often. Now, there was definitely uh, colleagues of mine that it seemed to happen to regularly. And sometimes I think you can put that down to luck. You know, if they went to lots of certain types of incidents, mostly I would say it was how some of my uh, former colleagues spoke to people. You know, there was people with a bit of service, you know, that were having a bad day, generally, you know, sort of were fairly short with people. And of course, that just rubbed them up the wrong way. And you're almost guaranteed a roll around with them before you get out of the car. And you also knew that if you work with certain people, you know, certain cops, obviously, as in all walks of life, are more aggressive than others. So, you know, you, if you were working one person, it was almost a standing joke. We're guaranteed a fight tonight because almost certainly he or she is going to instigate it. You know, that's just how they how they are. And there, there is a place, you know, for those people in the force, because I'm afraid you deal with, you know, some really unpleasant characters that have to be dealt with pretty robustly. Um, so yeah, you knew it was going to happen, just a question of how bad, and unfortunately we have seen, you know, all the levels ranging from, you know, the few little scratches and cuts and things, I was forever getting cut knuckles, cut arms, cut hands, because when you're kind of rolling around on the floor with someone on a tarmac road, or you're standing against the edge of a building, so you're getting rubbed up against sort of brick walls, it's always taking the skin off your, your arms and things, that's just how it is, and obviously we've seen the terrible incidents where it's gone right up to officers being killed, which thankfully is still very rare in the UK. It does happen, but uh, it is a pretty rare occurrence, which is why it's such a big deal when it does. Do the courts protect cops, you know, in the line of their duty? I think you wouldn't find many cops that thought they did. Some of the sentences that I've seen in the press recently are horrendous, you know, cops being really seriously injured with life-changing injuries that will always affect them. And, you know, these these guys and girls that are assaulting them sometimes with weapons or with acid or with boiling water or whatever are just walking away with literally a slap on the wrist and that's pretty galling um but um that's certainly how it seems to be at the moment so on to this uh this first incident of mine then um i was working a a late late shift uh now obviously all forces are different things change all the time but at the time i had probably i was in my first year still I hadn't long been allowed out by myself on foot for foot patrol, which I always quite enjoyed. But generally what what would happen is um, you would work from maybe 6pm till 2am or 7pm to 3am. And the idea was that you were covering the nightclubs. You know, the nightclubs kind of kicked out around about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And they needed that hour where you had extra cops on before they went off duty. And then kind of um, a skeleton crew, if you like, would be left to deal with the night shift, perhaps. I mean, resources, again, is another thing that's really difficult um, constantly, I would say, throughout, you know, policing's history, but particularly so at the moment, it seems. So what would happen is you'd work on the cars from seven till, say, midnight, 
And then at midnight, so you'd be answering your normal 909 calls and doing whatever inquiries you had outstanding. And then from midnight onwards, you come in, you come into the NIC, you'd have your break. Now, this break is called different things, depending on where you work in the country within the UK, please. Certainly, uh, the two that I know of is refs is the obvious one, refreshment. So you come in for your refs break. Um, but in Scotland, it's called a peace break. Now, I always assumed that was because you supposedly got some peace during your meal break, but the reality is peace is another word for a sandwich in Scotland. So um, they would quite often say we're going in for our peace break um, or refs. That's that's the sort of two things I would know it as. So you'd come in at midnight for your refs. Um, you'd have maybe, you know, 45 minutes to have a bite to eat. And then after that, you'd go out in the, the battle bus, the trouble bus. And this, quite frankly, as a young man, was great fun. There would be a sergeant in the front passenger seat. There would be... Uh, a driver, normally one of the more experienced guys or girls, and then you'd perhaps have, you know, depending on where you worked, maybe six to ten to maybe twelve in the back, you know, if on a good day, um, that uh, would basically be that first response to the, you know, fight in progress in a pub, nightclub fight, those sorts of things, or the bigger domestics that perhaps involve several sets of neighbours. That with the battle bus would always get sent first, and that invariably was, you know, quite a large sort of sixteen-seat minibus or something like that. Um, at the time, it was uh, DAF carriers, which were these very big um, sort of uh, minibuses that were powered by old Rover V8 engines, three and a half litre petrol engines. And these things sounded brilliant when they were coming, and particularly when they were really being pushed hard. So if they were coming. Um, fast, you know, to help you, they tended to backfire. So there'd be this tremendous roar from the engine and then there'd be a huge boom as it backfired. And certainly as a cop, and when we go through the story, you'll hear that that's quite a, a nice sound to hear at the time because you knew the cavalry, cavalry were coming to save you, basically. Um, <clears throat> however, if there was more or, or if perhaps there was uh, uh, more cops than one minibus could take, they might also decide to put out a few walkers and and cop, if any cops are listening to this now, they'll be going, what, more than 10 people on a shift? That's just incredible, you know, because they're so used to such small numbers and having the luxury to actually go out and walk, you know, on the beat, on foot patrol, sort of old school policing. Again, it just doesn't happen now because they just haven't got the resources. But at the time and on this particular night, I was looking forward to the battle bus. So I wanted to get stuck in, as I say, with my pals, racing around to these fights. 10 of us jumping out en masse, you know, and, and grabbing these people that are fighting that. I say, brilliant fun. Um, but unfortunately, on this night, I was tasked to um, foot patrol, and it was foot patrol by myself, um, which was even worse, you know. So I was pretty uh, down in the dumps about having been given this task. So the plan was that kind of from midnight, one o'clock, there might have been two or three of us out on foot patrol, wandering around. These weren't really the days of sort of high-vis jackets and things. So you generally had you know, black trousers, black jackets. So you weren't immediately recognisable. The only thing that did make you a bit more recognisable, and I know <clears throat> perhaps um, our listeners from America will like this, we used to wear the custodian helmets, uh, which you still see in a lot of the English forces, which are the classic Bobby on the beat, sort of tall top hats. Now, they, they look really ungainly, um, and it, quite often people see them as a bit of a joke item, you know, but actually they're quite comfy to wear, they do provide a certain amount of protection for your head. You know, I've been in scenarios where things have been thrown at me and they bounced off my custodian helmet. Google that and you'll see the big sort of top hats that everyone associates with, you know, the British Bobby. Um, 
but yeah, they're actually quite comfy and, and it did make you stand out, well, to a degree, but certainly you were all in black. So you had to bear that in mind in the darkness by yourself. Although you could use that to your advantage, you know, certainly um, if you were on of a night shift and you were tasked for foot patrol, that could be quite good because you'd be creeping around the streets at two and three in the morning. Certainly perhaps, you know, you knew that some shops were getting uh, burgled in a certain area or there was a particular drug dealing problem or something like that. And you could be sneaking around in the shadows, tucked away, even take your you know helmet off because it wouldn't make you stand out so much. You're just somebody in a black jacket and you could tuck yourself in an alley and have a good view of the street and listen to what's going on. Now, listening was really important because um, if you, you know, if there's no wind um, and you stand still on a night, you know, in a high street somewhere, it's really quiet. You literally, you know, can hear a pin drop. So if a window suddenly gets put in by a wannabe burglar, you can be there quite quickly and, and your ears, you know, and your direction will tell you quite quickly where that's coming from. So you can start directing cars in from other directions to try and cut these people off if they've broken into a shop, for example. So it could be quite good fun. Um, I'd done some foot patrol in, in the neighbouring town with a very experienced cop. And um, from my point of view, I was appalled as, as a young cop turning up. This guy uh, was kind of 50 odd. He had, you know, like 27, 28 years in a lot of service, basically where I was at when I left the job. Um, and I looked on him as very much an old dinosaur, you know, which I guess is, is where I'm at now. And um, but to my horror, when we went to go foot patrol in the town centre, he pulled out a custodian, you know, a top hat, as we've talked about. Of course, we all had those that was expected. But he also had a cape. Now, you know, we're talking now. This is probably at that point he would have you know, started in the job probably 50, 60 years ago and capes were still issued. You know, now this is something from Jack the Ripper's era of policing. You know, you've probably seen them. And again, Google, you know, British Bobby in a cape and you'll see what I mean. It's like a great big poncho that sort of sits over your, your shoulders and all around covers your arms. Now, I did try it on more because, you know, it was basically shortly to go to a museum. That's how old it was. But he absolutely swore by it. And I found out why later on. Um, they were very useful in a number of ways. Firstly, they kept the weather off your tree. They were completely waterproof. So you could tuck under this cape, three quarters of your body was, you know, was dry and warm and it, it, you know, cut the wind out. But also the guy I worked with, um, I realised why he likes them so much because while we were out and about on the town, you could eat a bag of chips under your cape and no one could see. Um, he would have a sneaky roll up, a cigarette on the go underneath his cape you know they were useful for a number of occasions and on one occasion when we turned up to a big fight and there was a really big guy who was going to cause us some problems um i found another use for the cape because actually they were very heavy as well the material i made are very heavy and he was able to take it off kind of fold it in half and use it almost as a bludgeon to clout this guy around the head with um, who was basically wanting to take on all comers and um so yeah capes initially as i say i was appalled as a young cop but actually quite useful. Uh, so back to the story. So I'm tasked with uh, basically chugging around, walking around the various nightclubs that were in my town. There was about uh, half a dozen or maybe eight of them. There was sort of, most of them were in the town centre and were in one place. But uh, there was one particularly, a fairly new one that was strangely on an industrial estate that was just outside of the town centre. And we were really surprised when it was allowed because it just didn't seem to fit in. You know, this was like a light industrial estate that had, you know, kind of car mechanics and 
delivery things going on and what have you. And then in the middle of it was this nightclub in one of the big units. So a bit strange. And we'd had a, a fair bit of trouble out of it one way or another. So we were trying to get around and just show a presence, you know, make people aware. And also from a cop's point of view, pick up early on, you know, right, here's a large group of lads that are out on a stag do. They're all very drunk. You know, they seem quite aggressive and they're going in such and such nightclub. You can be telling the sergeant or the inspector, we might have a problem later at, at whatever club it was, you know. So it was a good sort of early warning system as well. And because we had maybe two or three of us out walking around the town, we'd bump into each other. Or certainly uh, the idea was we wanted people to feel that wherever they turned, wherever there was, you know, there was a cop. Um, and it hopefully it would call it sort of, you know, stop the trouble and, and before it started. But so I'd done the town centre nightclubs and that that was OK. Uh, there was no real issues. All say hello to the doorman. Any problems, they'd let you know again an early heads up of we got a group in that's going to be a problem, you know. Um, but it had all been fine this night and I decided that I was going to take that little extra walk out to um, the nightclub that was on this industrial site. So I wander out there. Now, um, unusually, we knew most of the doormen um, at the other clubs, but because this was a new club, there was a new security company had taken on this sort of contract for the doormen, the bouncers. And there was about half a dozen bouncers. There was a big club and um, I didn't know any of them, but they were all massive. I mean, generally doormen and bouncers are, are big. We know that, you know, they're generally, it's quite intimidating and that's the idea, isn't it? You know, that they look big, but... These guys were huge, all of them. And um, unusually at the time, they were kind of Eastern European, um, probably sort of ex-military types. But, uh, you know, we, we already knew they, they were hard men. There was no doubt about it. And if they're on your side, and quite often they can be, you know, obviously that is useful. So I wander up to the door and outside the club, there was a queuing system. And the queuing system was set up with those, I don't know if you know what I mean, but they're basically like chrome poles that are on stands and then in between the chrome poles were a series of very thick ropes you know that were hooked onto each other and that just formed a queuing system so that people could get in the club um so at the time and but they were freestanding and that's an important point for later um so i, I was speaking to the doorman and i said hi guys you know any problems uh everything all right tonight and uh their english you know wasn't great so we we did a bit of kind of uh, hand signals and talking and nodding and things, you know, but we got there in the end. Uh, and basically the gist of it was that they were quite busy, but there wasn't really any problems and they didn't see anyone, you know, groups or anything that caused them any problems. Well, talk about famous last words. At that point, there's double doors on the front of this nightclub so that when you open them out, you know, you can get a lot of people either out or in quite quickly, probably something to do with the sort of fire eggs. And, um, yeah, literally, as he said, no, no problems. And this is a bit like I said to you in a previous one, you know, cops and people like that never say it's quiet tonight because you're asking for trouble. You know, it's just, it's a cue night. We never say those words. And of course, this guy made the fatal mistake of saying, yeah, there's no problems tonight. As he said that, these double doors came smashing open, like the pair of them at once. And just this huge ball and mix of about 30 people came out in one big lump and in the middle of it was a couple of doormen um, who were having a huge scrap with part of this group and then the group were attacking them and it was a total melee. It was a mixture of male and female and uh, there was fists flying very quickly. As soon as they got outside, two of them picked up, uh, well, one doorman, I think, and then two of the sort of people involved in the fighting 
picked up these chrome poles we talked about, which were quite heavy. And on the end of them, they had sort of flat round discs that they normally stood up on. So they made quite a good weapon and started swinging this thing. So uh, I was like, Christ, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. It was a proper Wild West brawl came out. There was a couple of chairs came on them as well that were being used to hit people on the head with. You know, it was, it was a real, real fight. And um, so I, I grabbed up my radio and this was all happening, you know, kind of like 20 feet from me. And uh, the doorman kind of looked at me and, and we looked at each other <laughs> wide-eyed, sort of thinking, this is going to hurt. Grabbed my radio, my PR, my personal radio. Now, there's various things you can do at this point. Um, you can ask for more units. You could put up an urgent assistance. Or in some forces, they have a code. Now, in the UK, we're not really big on codes. I know, like, in America, you get 10-4 a lot and things like that. But in the UK, you tend not to hear that so much. Um, but... There are some exceptions. Now, an urgent assistance, basically an officer is in trouble, like big trouble, uh, like you need everyone there yesterday. You know, this is as bad as it gets. And it's a really serious call to make. So it shouldn't be wasted. And it certainly shouldn't be used, you know, willy nilly. Um, you only put that out if it's really bad. Um, but some forces, uh, the nationally approved thing was a code zero. If an officer puts out code zero, then you know, that is an urgent assistance. Everyone's coming running for that. But other forces still maintain their own versions of that. So down south in the home counties, some forces use 1020. If you put up a 1020, it's the same thing. Or a 1010. The Met tend to just say urgent assistance. Um, but also now we've got these radios called airwave radios that are on a different sort of um, system in terms of communications. Very, very good and, and solved a lot of the problems we had communication-wise overnight. But they also have an Emma button on top, an emergency button, the red button on top. And if you press and hold that for, I think it's a second or two, basically not only does it put out an urgent assistance call right across the network, um, so every cop in the area will hear you, but also um, it notifies the control room of your, your actual position. It's got a GPS chip in, so it'll tell you exactly where they are because that was a problem as well. People would put up urgent assistance and then not be able to sort of be in a position to say where they were or may not know where they were, you know, if they were new to the area or returned onto a street they weren't familiar with. Um, so this is a great system and it also makes your mic, your microphone live for, I think it's 10 seconds. So you knew you could press and hold this button once the alarm went off and it was a very sort of shrill alarm on it. So you knew it, everyone else knew it and you knew that you'd pressed it and it had activated. You also knew that you had your hands free for defending yourself but you could talk and they would still hear you. And also, from an evidential point of view, in the background, they would almost certainly hear someone shouting at you. If you had someone in your face saying, I'm going to stab you with this knife, you know, that would be heard quite clearly on the comm system, which would be recorded and was good evidence for later on at court. Anyway, I digress slightly because we didn't have that system at this point. So I had about a split second to make a decision on what I was going to put up as a call. In my force at the time, 10, 10, 10, 20 was an urgent assistance, but I didn't want to put that out. Um, even though the situation looked terrible, I also didn't want to be someone that was looked upon as, you know, a bit of a fanny, a bit of a baby that kind of, you know, called for their mum at the first sign of trouble. Well, that probably would have been justified in this case. So I just simply put up what it was I was looking at. I just said, large fight at so-and-so nightclub, and that was it. That's all I got a chance to put out. And that's all it needed, really, because... I very quickly told my colleagues what's going on. Everyone knows, you know, where that's going to lead. And I've managed to get the location out and everyone knew where that nightclub was. So so that was enough. And no doubt 
my voice went up a few octaves. You tend to get a bit more shrill, you know, and, and people, you can gauge that. If you're hearing a colleague put up an urgent assistance from the sort of tone of their voice, you can hear how bad it is or not. And also there are people that sort of put up assistance calls quite regularly and you kind of perhaps in your own mind think, oh, right, it's them again. Yeah, okay, another urgent assistance, is it? right? Oh, yeah, I won't be driving too quick to this one, you know, because they would be putting them up every week. It was ridiculous. However, if somebody you really knew well and respected that you'd never heard, call one, put one up and put it up in a in a high voice, you know, you pulled out all the stops to get there. You knew it was going to be, <coughs> excuse me, um, you knew it was going to be bad. So on this scenario, I put put up what's happening and then basically dived into the melee. I didn't really know what I was going to do. There were so many people fighting, some with weapons, big doorman and all the rest of it. I didn't really know how I was going to defend against that or stop it, really. I just thought I've just got to hang on until I get some people here to help me. Literally hang on. So I sort of jumped into the crowd, started pulling people away from the fighting by their arms and by their shirts and what have you, just to try and stop it. But it was pointless almost because the second you pulled them out, they were flying back in and throwing fists again. Um, at this point, none of it was directed at me because probably no one had stopped to realise who I was, thankfully. Um, but it was just to say literally a free-for-all. So having got further into the sort of melee, I found myself in front of a woman and I got hold of, she had her arms up and both her fists clenched and she'd just thrown a punch at someone in front of her. I stepped in front of her and got hold of both of her wrists and said to her, look, just take it easy. That's as far as I got. Because whether she knew who I was or not, it didn't matter. Unfortunately, by grabbing hold of her wrists, you put yourself on offer. You're very close. You can't avoid it. I haven't got 10 foot long arms. So I'm obviously right up in her face, you know, as she is in mine. And what happened was, uh, I was facing her square on, which again is something in my <laughs> latter service I never did again after this lesson. She need me full power in the groin. Now, all the guys out there that are listening to this will probably know what that feels like. But for the ladies, I'll try and describe it. Um, initially, now, you can get a glancing blow and you kind of, it'll make you react, but you'll be literally counting your, uh, thanking your lucky stars that you haven't been caught full on. But if you get a full-on, you know, knee or kick to the groin that catches you properly, the almost instant reaction is to drop to the floor. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. But it certainly it is for me. It is a horrendous pain. It's not like a sharp pain. It's like a dull pain. It's difficult to describe. It's incredibly painful. And it just makes you want to double up and protect yourself. Um, and then what happens is going forward for the next maybe 15 or 20 minutes after that, you end up with a really bad kind of low down pain in your groin and your stomach. It's just a really nasty thing. And obviously, you know, men are very vulnerable to it. Um, so yes, I did exactly what I've done in that scenario before, which was uh, having received this full on knee and it was full power as well. And it caught me an absolute treat. You know, she couldn't have done it better if she tried. It basically dropped me, dropped me to the floor and I was doubled up on the floor but then, thankfully, I was instantly forgotten to her. She was back to throwing fists. So I was in this bizarre scenario where I'm lying on my back, looking up. It almost sounds romantic, this, isn't it? I'm lying on my back, looking up at this starlit night. But unfortunately, all I'm seeing above me is this huge group of people that are throwing punches at each other, each other kicking each other, swinging metal poles at each other. You know, there was chairs crashing in. You know, I mean, it, it is a sight I'll never forget. And and basically, I was out of the game. You know, that, that was me done for. I was just holding my groin, lying on the floor, rolling around in agony. You know, and there was nothing I could have done. 
thankfully, no one then followed it up with, you know, giving me a proper kick in. Um, and then, remember we talked about the DAF carriers earlier that used to backfire when they came to save you? In the background, I could hear this really meaty engine, sort of very high revving coming, screaming down the road, followed by a huge backfire. And I knew what it was, and I knew who was coming to save me. It was the battle bus, you know, hurrah. So this, uh, you know, the the meat wagon or whatever you want to call it, comes screaming down the road, doors open, backside, everyone, cops pile out. Immediately there's like a dozen cops pile out and, and wade in. Um, and then there's cars turning up all the time. Now there's two or three, four, five cars coming as well because I've put it up and thankfully everyone's responded as they should. You know, I didn't have to say the words urgent assistance or 1020 or whatever else. You know, people knew from what it was that it needed lots of units. So they all came and I was very thankful. Um, so basically, they started peeling the fighters off from around me and people were getting arrested. I think ended up with about 10 in custody, including a doorman who'd actually hit someone around the head with one of these poles and had opened up the top of their sort of scalp, a treat, you know, to expose their skull again. It was a really nasty injury and it was certainly a, a GBH, a grievous bodily harm, you know, very serious assault um, or a, what's called a section 18 sort of wounding with intent, you know, a, a quite a high level offence. Um, I mean, he could have killed the guy, you know, these things were quite heavy, but anyway, they peeled them all off and at the bottom of the pile is little old me laying there crying like a baby virtually, you know, and, and sort of holding my groin, everything I didn't want my colleagues to see, but I'm afraid I wasn't in a position to do anything else. So I got sort of picked up and dusted off and taken back and it was the standard pat on the back, you're all right, son, here's a cup of tea. Um, and that was it and kind of, you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, I was recovered um, apart from the pain and, and also uh, quite a big hit, you know, to my uh, pride uh, and, and felt that I had, you know, perhaps gone down uh, a notch or two in my colleagues' estimations, who don't forget was, you know, were quite new to me, you know, and you're, you're, you're keen to, to be seen as part of the team and someone that people can sort of look up to and respect. Um, but the reality is I did what I could, I think, and um, I don't think anyone looked down on me. You know, there was very little I could do with 30 people fighting and just me. Um, but unfortunately, the fact that it was a female, of course, that need me on the groin, I did get a bit of stick and some wind-ups for afterwards. You know, um, whenever I got a call now, maybe to a female shoplifter or something, I was there was a bit of uh, wind-ups. You know, oh, you're right, Dave. You know, do you need, like, the van to come with you? Because it might be, you know, a little girl. It could be a schoolgirl, perhaps. You know, maybe she'll need you, you know, and you'll need your pals to come and save you. I mean, that's what the job, you know, that's what cops thrive on, that banter, that mickey-taking. And, you know, I've always enjoyed that. And trust me, I've dished it out as well. So you have got to take it as well. But there we go. So it went off to court. As I say, this is the first time I've been sort of officially assaulted on duty. It went off to court and this woman went to court and in my mind, my naive mind, I was like, oh, she's going to get, you know, two or three years, you know, because it was a terrible injury to me. Although, thankfully, obviously, no long lasting damage. I was able to become uh, a dad still. So that was good. But um, yeah, I went off to court. Obviously, I was called in evidence and I went into court and, you know, classic court stuff. But the time you, you heard about this poor, poor woman, you know, she was virtually a victim in it. She was like a single mother of three. She was on benefits she had a drink problem, you know, and she, she had this. And of course, her solicitor really played it up for the court. And, you know, she, she hasn't got any money at all. And this was the first time, you know, since her children had been, been born, like five years or whatever, that she'd been out, you know, and she'd been, you know, on the wagon and not had a drink for, for ages, you know. But 
and this was so this was a terrible mistake and she feels really bad and she'd like to apologize to the officer and you know they put on the full works this is what they do in court and I was sat there uh, kind of listening to this having given my evidence and I was like mm -hmm, yeah righto um, but thinking that's all right magistrates in through this no problems at all um, she's still going to get a custodial sentence she's going to prison for what she did to me yeah right so she got convicted assault police and uh, I think she got something like a hundred pound fine. That was it. She got a hundred pound fine. And of course, because they made a big thing of how how poorly off she was, you know, how she had so little money, she couldn't afford a hundred pound in one hit. So there was the suggestion that maybe she could pay it in instalments. Um, so it was like, yes, okay. And the, and the instalments were always ridiculous. It was something like, you know, she'll pay it off at £2.50 a week, you know, or something like that. And I was sitting there, I wanted to stand up and go, what? Did you see what she did to me? You know, I'd already described what had happened to me, but of course it just gets brushed off. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I wasn't overly happy with a £100 fine, I can tell you. And what normally happens is you also get compensation as well. We're going to award the officer £50 compensation for his pain, you know. And you're like, wow, thanks. You know, but you think, well, £50, that's all right. I could, you know, buy a meal with that or something. And then they say, but of course, that can't be paid in one hit. So <laughs> the amusing thing was for the next like two years, you'd get like a three pound a month payment or something uh, for, from this woman as compensation for kneeing me in the groin, you know. Uh, so it was just a joke, quite frankly. But what you have to think of is in the job. And, and actually, I came out of there and was pretty hacked off and went kind of moping back to the nick where one of the old sweats, you know, one of the cops with loads of years service, one of the wily old foxes, you know, was kind of awesome. Matter. I was like, oh, just been on my first assault police, you know, she got a hundred quid fine and I was bleating about it. And um, he was like, right, well, you've got some decisions to make. He said, because that happens all the time and that will continue to happen throughout your service. And this guy was saying, it's happened throughout my service and I've got nearly 30 years in, you know. So you're like, right, okay. He said, so the decision you've got to make is either you can deal with that and you have to think, I will keep going out there and arresting the bad guys and girls and putting them to the court. I'll put the evidence to the court. And unfortunately, it's then out of our hands. Either way, at the end of the month, I will still get paid. But I do my bit. I do the paperwork. I arrest the bad guys and girls. I put them to the court. And then the court decides what the sentence is. It's out of my hands. The police always get a really hard time. Um for, oh, they put it to court, you know, and they only got six months or whatever it was. Um, but they have to realise that we have no say on the sentence at all. We put the evidence and the people to court, the court makes the decision on what the punishment is. And most of the time, you know, members of the public feel that it is woefully inadequate. And I've got to be honest, they're right. So anyway, the old sweat saying to me, so you either deal with that, accept you'll get paid, keep doing your bit, or you leave the job now because it's going to eat you up, I tell you. And lots of people left, because they got so disillusioned, you know, with these pathetic sentences being handed out. So that was the decision you had to make. <clears throat> but, as I've already said, I had a long career. I won't say illustrious, but I certainly had a long career, so I did accept that I'll do my bit, I'll put them to the court, and they'll make the decision. So that's that. Assaults on police, or certainly the first one on me, and a little bit of um, ramblings in between. So hopefully you found that interesting. We'll move on next week to something else. Uh, trying to keep it varied as we sort of go through my career. Lots more stories to come. And obviously we'll talk about the specialist units that I went on to join later on in my service. 
Thanks very much for the downloads. Probably been the busiest week that I've ever had for downloads this week. So, the, you know, the sort of channel is definitely growing. You know that Police Stories podcast, we're on YouTube and all the various, pretty much virtually all of them, I think now, to be honest with you. Um, so wherever you, you listen, thanks for that. Um, and uh, YouTube, certainly you've got the option of you listen on there, you can go on and make comments or ask a question or something if you want to. But that's it for now. Thanks very much. And we'll speak again soon. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.